When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hi, I'm Dr. Caroline Leaf and you're listening to my podcast, Cleaning Up the Mental Mess. In this episode, I interview writer, speaker, therapist, coach and creator of one of my favorite Instagram accounts, Mina B. In this podcast, Mina and I discuss how justice and community work is vital mental health work, how to ask for help and overcome the guilt or shame in seeking help, how to recognize when we need to set boundaries how to set boundaries, and how to stick with them. Mina also shares some great tips for increasing mental health management skills. Just a reminder before we begin this episode, you can now pre-order my new book, Cleaning Up Your Mental Mess, wherever books are sold, or visit cleaningupyourmentalmess.com. Why should you pre-order? Well, when you pre-order your book before the 2nd of March, you'll get access to some exciting bonus content, like a workbook, extra chapters on things like how to use the neurocycle with children, access to an exclusive book club with me, major discounts and free products from my favorite supplement company, and more. But these are only available if you pre-order and register your pre-order before March 2nd. So just go to cleaningupyourmentalmess.com or drleaf.com for more details. I'll also include the link in the show notes. And now, on to today's episode. Mina, welcome into the studio. I'm so excited to be interviewing you today. I love your work. I love your page. I have it up at the moment. I have plenty of questions for you. But before we begin, welcome. And can you introduce yourself to my audience? I've heard your great bio, but it's always nice to hear from you personally. Of course. Thank you so much, Dr. Leaf. My name is Mina B. I am a licensed therapist, a writer, and a wellness coach based in New York City. I work with clients who struggle with depression, anxiety, and trauma specific to childhood and racial trauma. But I also teach people how to cultivate healthy relationships through self-care practices that are rooted in boundaries and community care. Love it. Such important work. You know, as you know, I'm a mind specialist, mind brain research. And I keep telling everyone, you know, we spend so much time with our bodies and we, we understand an athlete has to spend hours training, but we don't seem to kind of this, this current sort of pop culture and the way that mental health has gone. People don't pay the same attention to their mind. And our mind is everything. I mean, we're always thinking our mind's never stopping. Our mind never stops. So we've got to deal with our mind because our mind's behind everything. So everything that you've just said, those are aspects of mind that we need to deal with. So I'm very excited to talk to you about them. And I'd love to begin with a post that you just put up 
quite recently, which I thought was really important. And the overarching first area I'd like love to you to talk about is, and I've just made some notes here, social justice is mental health work. Mm-hmm. I mean, that is like super important. And you put up a great post where you talked about when we, I'm just going to read you a couple of parts of the post. When we talk okay. about community care, we must also acknowledge community violence and how it collectively disrupts the social, emotional, and even cognitive development of those who are constantly exposed to public violence. And then you talk about safety is a vital necessity in life that supports our development. And then you talk about exposure to domestic terrorism, gang violence, shooting, robberies, racism, etc. It's not just an interpersonal issue. It's a community issue and has detrimental, long-lasting effects on the growth and development of survivors of violence. Just such important stuff. And then you talk about self-care as the bridge. So take it away. Talk about how racism's it's always been there. But we seem to have reached a stage in, in globally and in this country where things have exploded and it's really been accelerated by obviously COVID and all kinds of things. But it's it's really good that there's an awareness now. We've been really, even though we were aware, people were very good at like pretending it didn't exist. But we're not doing, or hopefully it will stay that, we're not doing that anymore and hopefully it will stay that way. But can you talk to us about how this, this the impact the, that this is community, working on community issues, social justice, this is mental health work for all of us? Yes, of course. So this is one of my favorite topics. <laughs> Good. It's one of mine too. And I, and I couldn't think of a better person to discuss it. So go well, ahead. Thank, thank you so much. So, I mean, one, I do want to start off by saying it's very loaded. But the way I perceive it is, you know, it makes me think of Maslow's hierarchy of needs, where he talks about safety and security being very crucial to our development. And one of my backgrounds as well as a therapist is I also work in a Head Start program where I work with children ages zero to five. And so when we think about childhood development, we're often talking about how safety and security is very crucial for their developing brain. But I think as we get older, the sense of safety and security gets lost. I think we attach safety and security to infancy and toddlers. But once we start navigating adolescence and adulthood, there's this sense of independence and this why we lose this connection related to interdependence. And in many ways, our safety and our security is threatened in different ways. For example, when we think of racism, when we think of gun violence, but then also when we think of housing displacement, when we think of redlining, when we think of structural racism, that also impacts safety and security on a developmental level. And so for me, I find that community care is a huge part of my work. And I guess that's just a social worker in me. Outside of being a therapist, I am highly rooted in my practices as a social worker doing on the ground work, just because I feel that community has become something a lot of us have lost, you know, and I think community is something that we have to continue to cultivate. But if we want to talk about community care, which basically is us tending to one another, leaning on one another, holding each other accountable, being able to ask each other for help, being able to nurture our environments, we also have to address violence that is happening in our community. And when violence happens in our community, it is not just an interpersonal issue where it happened to that person, so therefore it's for them to fix. It's about recognizing 
that is everyone's issue. When we look at racism, it is not just, well, I had a racist encounter, so that's my problem. No, it's everyone's problem because we're now seeing how racism is a mental health issue. Racism is a public health issue is what I mean. And so... Yes. And so when I think about the context of racism, when we think about domestic terrorism and how people don't feel safe in their neighborhoods, people don't feel safe frequenting work, people don't feel safe traveling and commuting to certain places because of their color of their skin, their, how they identify, that is a community-related issue. I always say think of it from the context of if I break my ankle, not only is my ankle going to be sore, but it's going to affect how I walk. It's going to affect my leg. If I break my wrist, it is going to impact the movement of my, of my arm. So when one part of the body aches, the rest of the body is going to hurt. And so when I think of community, if one part of the community is aching, that is affecting everyone that's around that community. That is affect, that's an every person issue. So for me, mental health, and social justice have a huge connection because when we think of safety, when we think of the things that we need to feel secure, housing, food, access to clean water, access to not living in food deserts, having access to healthy foods, right? Having access to free childcare, having access to safe schools where teachers are getting paid and teachers are having resources for children. All of that is a community level issue, issue because this these issues also play into intergenerational trauma, you know. And so that's that. This is why this conversation can be so loaded because what we're not recognizing is these issues that become unaddressed when it's not addressed on a community level and it's not addressed in an individual level. Now we have these systems and these ideologies and these issues being passed down through generations, and so. For me, community care is also looking at mental health through the lens of social justice because we need to be able to feel safe to thrive. And healing work is great. Going to therapy, you know, I'm an advocate for that. Doing all these different self-care practices are necessary, but we can't forget about social justice. We can't, affect, can't forget about how things like racism, implicit bias, sexism, homophobia, xenophobia, all the isms, all these different things are impacting our self-development. It's impacting our growth. It's impacting our cognitive development. It, it impacts how we create safety and a sense of connection in this world. So that is just my philosophy around it, where self-care is the bridge to community care and community care is the bridge to community healing. And if one part of the body aches, the rest of us are going to feel that. We all are going to be broken. So in a world where we are striving for togetherness, we have to recognize what lane can I occupy? Because I can't be the advocate for every single issue out there. None of us have the capacity to do that. But we do have a calling to recognize maybe this is the lane that I can occupy. This is the lane where I feel like I can learn. This is the lane where I feel like I have skills and knowledge that I can bring to the table. And it's something that I feel like I can also absorb information and I can bring it back to my communities, whether it be my family, people at my job, my neighbor, when I'm walking through the grocery store and the people that I live by. Those are the things and those are the people that I can impact and bring awareness to. 
You've said so much, and it, as you say, that's a loaded, a loaded concept, a loaded question, but one that needs to be addressed. But you already started giving some quite practical tips there because we're all having these conversations, and it's so good we are having finally having much more. We should we need more. There needs to be more conversations like this. That's why I'm such an advocate for having conversations like this, and like you are. But we we've got to go from awareness to doing. You know, we've got to go. So at least we're creating the awareness. We've got to continue through education to create the awareness and keep having. The conversations, but then there's the actual doing. And I love how you've addressed the fact that you've got to deal with yourself as an individual in community. And I'm sure, Mina, you're aware of the research showing that we, how Western cultures become so individualized and that the United States is one of the most individualized societies and how that's contributed yeah. to the epidemic of loneliness and, and not people not managing their mind and people dying younger and all, it's, you know, all the contributing factors and how in communities like in Japan and the sort of more Eastern cultures and, and Africa and that it's much more community focused. And so it's the individual in the community and how much healthier that is. And they did that one study and I'm thinking of you talking about self being the bridge to the community care and I love that I love that you've combined the two because they had they did a study where they I'm just going to give you the broad outline because it totally relates and I want you to take away on a practical level what we can do they talked about when they asked people in Japan you know what's the most important thing to you they said this is so beautiful they their position in the community so them in the community so they didn't whereas when they asked Americans of all colors it was very much around me, myself, my goals, my passions, my desires. my So it was me, myself, and I versus me in the community. And until we get back to collectivism, which is what you're talking about, we versus individualism, which we're not designed for, it's damaging, we're going to have this continual problem. Because also when we go to collectivism, when I recognize the bridge to understanding my self-care, I can then look after myself and it's a continual process, then I can see the problems in the community because I feel at a level of mental peace and restoration, I feel strong. I then can contribute to my community. But if I'm broken, I don't know how to help my community. So we do have to mix the two. But then also, I mean, my research shows that as soon as you start looking, managing your own awareness, your immediate response is to actually help others. So when people become selfish, it's because they're not doing their own healing work. But when people start doing their healing work, they become selfless and they want to get reach out into the community and notice the problems. And all that's, it's all mind work. So that means that mind is mental health, it's not some illness. And that's the other thing I wanted you to just address in this big question this, this, I'm making a statement and I'm going to bring it down to a, a fixed question, is that we've got to recognize that mental health is not an illness and it's not an it in the individual like cancer or diabetes, which t- t- then once again reinforces individualism. Oh, that, and we all know that the statistics show that African people of color the, are going to be diagnosed quicker with things like schizophrenia. They're going to be medicated more, which means they're going to have more cardiovascular issues, stroke, blah, blah, blah. We know the facts are there. The st- we know it. We have to address it. We have to stop... We have to start accepting diversity. We have to, collectivism means all of us agree to be, to, to accept everyone. And that's the sort of societal big picture of how we're going to be able to start coping with, and that's why I make the changes because it is creating, it's it's mentally unhealthy for a person to be racist and it's mentally unhealthy for a person to accept racism. Both cause brain damage and it damages the society. Okay, so I've said a lot there to undergird what you're saying. So my question to you is, I love your individual in community and the one being the bridge to the other. So can you talk a little more about that and can you talk about practical ways that whether you are a person of color or or you're not whether you're white or you what can i do what can you do what can we do together to change this because we've got to stop the other we've got to recognize these i am white you are black it's beautiful 
that's you've got to say, oh, I don't see color. You know that nonsense that happens. You are black. I am white. There is implicit bias. That's a fact. So how do we work through this together? Because and that in itself, that recognition and acceptance of that agreeing and accepting diversity is so much part of our mental health growth. And how can we use that to bridge? Okay, so hand over to you now for how you ever, however you want to take that part of the discussion <laughs> away. Yes. I mean, everything that you said was so beautiful and just hits the nail on the head, you know? And so when I think of how we can bridge self-care to community care, the first thing I will say is we have to want it, right? We can't force it. And it has to be a desire. It has I'm writing to be that something. down. It's so good. Yeah. If we summarize at the end. <laughs> we truly have to want that connection. You know, and by first wanting that connection, we're stepping into a place of self-awareness and that self-awareness is going to help us to see how we are lacking and in the areas which we are lacking and how we can start building those areas of connection. Connection is broad. Connection happens with friends. It happens with families. It happens with colleagues. It happens within organizations that we frequent, whether it be a church or a part of a group setting. So I want to lay that foundation first because I think sometimes, especially in my work, a lot of people, when they think of connection, they immediately think, I need a friend. And everyone is not going to be your friend on this journey of finding connection. Connection could be as simple as, I go to this church and I know that person's name. We never hang out. I've never been to their house. I don't know too much about them but I know their name. When I see them, I say hello. When I go to the grocery store, this person who who swipes my groceries almost every time, I say hello to them and I address them by their name. You know, and so it's not about building, connection is not always about how can I secure a friend or even a partner. It's about how can I secure community? Who do, whose names? Yes, it's like whose names do I know? Right. And thinking about the people who you frequently see, how can I get to know them on an interpersonal level? And getting to know someone could be as simple as hello. How was your day? Or if you have a more intimate relationship with them, asking them, is there something that you need? What's going on for you? How is your mental health? How is your mood today? You know, and so I want to start off with that foundation so that people can recognize that we're, if this is not just about how can we cultivate friendships. And just have a group of friends that we know. It's really about community and connection. It's all about how we can build a bridge of compassion and empathy toward people who we may not have intimate relationships with. We are all spending so much more time at home nowadays. And so much research and studies out there have shown that the way you decorate and set up your living space can impact your mental health. If you're looking for some great inspiration, beautiful home decor items, and top quality furniture, then check out Jenny Kane. It's where I get most of my home decor items nowadays. Jenny Kane pillows and throws have what every room needs. From versatile linen and ultra-soft alpaca to the coziest cashmere editions and the brand new Sonoma collection is amazing. Made with exceptional quality, integrity and timeless design in mind, you'll love coming home to these pieces. Whether you're restyling your tabletop, refreshing your bedroom or embarking on a full-on remodel, home always starts with Jenny Kane. Find your forever pieces at JennyKane.com Get 15% off your first order when you use the code DRLEAF at checkout. 
And for a limited time, that includes furniture too. That's 15% off your first order. J-E-N-N-I-K-A-Y-N-E dot com promo code Dr. Lee. The link and offer details will also be in the show notes. So it's not a zero-sum game. I don't know you. I don't have time to form a deep, meaningful relationship, so I'm not even going to bother to learn your name. But you go to the same gym every day and the same shop every day. You find out their names, say a couple of words. That's what you're saying. That's also connection. Doesn't it, Not every connection exactly. has to be a deep, meaningful connection. You'll have a certain amount of those. And that's actually so good because I think we've come in, you've, you know, you've, we come in with this thing, oh, it's got to always be a deep, meaningful connection. And that stops you making other connections that are different. I love that. Right. Right, exactly. You know, so I think that's just the first foundation of recognizing what connection and community care really is. It's not about how we can grow our friendship list. It's really all about how can we get to know people's names, you know. And so another thing that we can do is, as I said before, think about the areas that you frequent. Do you know the people that you work with? There are people who actually show up to work and they're so isolated at their jobs and they're so focused on being inward that they don't even, some people don't even know the names of their colleagues. I have worked with clients and people as well, organizations where things have happened in an organization where they were concerned that someone was breaking in. They were concerned about a person's particular presence and didn't even know that that person was an employee. So that to me says a lot about culture. Right. But also we can't always blame things on company culture when we also have a sense of agency and autonomy and we have the power to go up to someone and say, hey, I never saw you before. Can I ask who you are and cultivate that conversation? We don't need our bosses or our CEOs to do that ground level work for us, you know. And so I always say, think about areas where. You're always around. Like you mentioned, the gym. How often do we go to the gym and probably see the same face all the time? And you might realize like, oh, well, maybe this person is doing a particular workout that I'm struggling with. Maybe I can go up to them and ask them a few questions, you know, and not and also recognizing, too, this requires a level of vulnerability. So we have to ask ourselves, what are we afraid of? when it comes to meeting new people and opening ourselves up to the possibility of making a connection. And I think it's more freeing when we recognize that, like I said before, connection is not just rooted in building a friendship. It's just rooted in building a community. And I think when we shift it from that, shift it and look at it from that perspective, it takes off the weight of feeling like we have to one perform for people of feeling like we have to necessarily present ourselves in an inauthentic way because we're trying to keep this person in our circle. It's really just about how can I get to know your name? You know, as I said before. So I, I, I say start with there. You know, think about your family. Who can you call, right? Who haven't you spoke to in a really long time? When we look at our friendships, are our friendships diverse? When now we're talking about, to shift it a little bit and talk about race, do we have diverse friendships? Do we have diverse friendships at work? Do we have diverse friendships at the organizations, like I said, that we frequent all the time? How can we start to get to know people? Because sometimes, depending on the experiences that we have, we self-segregate. And so we automatically remove ourselves 
from diversity because there's some fear there. And for people who are, are BIPOC, there is valid fear in racial trauma and racial anxiety. So there is a valid concern for, I want to remove myself from being exposed to other cultures. But I think there is so much value when we can all come together and build from a place of accountability, right? And being open to being open to being held accountable, you know? And I think that is another foundation to this piece of if I want to build and cultivate community, if I want to learn how to step outside of this role, I'm also going to have to prepare my heart and my spirit for being held accountable. Because I also also believe that when I think of that bridge of self-care to community care, it's like recognizing if I'm operating from a place of ignorance, I bring that ignorance to my community. And if I'm operating from a place of love, empathy, compassion, and an ability to learn, I'm bringing that energy to my community as well. So I think when we think of these different levels of foundation that we want to expose ourselves to, it's also about recognizing how can I open myself up to being heard, but how can I also open myself up to being a better listener and someone who is ready to learn and also unlearn? Oh, I love that. I love that. I love how you explained it, the sense of self being carried over. So if you if you fearful in yourself, you'll carry the fear over. Whatever it is that you haven't quite done, and we all we never all together there. It's a process. We, it's a lifelong yeah. journey. So I teach with my book. We all a mental mess. <laughs> this is my latest book that's coming out. <laughs> we all a mental mess, and for various different reasons, and we bring that to the table. But someone who's recognizing and acknowledging in the self care concept of the individual, when we recognize that we are a mental mess, and we recognize I need. To work on this you come to the table with a different energy so you go out there saying hey i'm like this so i have more empathy and compassion for you i'm working on this hey maybe this will help you versus someone who's who suppresses and stays in their fear and withdraws they're going to go into that community with that withdrawn fearful and then that can be misinterpreted and misperceived and misread and and also you're not then contributing because you'll isolate you won't connect and that person that just needed a hi, how are you today? You look so pretty. Mm-hmm. Or that's all they just needed that day. You won't be able to do that. And so we've got to get ourselves. That's what you mean by the bridge, isn't it? That you've got to get yeah. yourself. You've got to be working on yourself. Not. And that's the other thing. I just want to stress that that what I've mentioned already. Be all a mental mess. You've got to keep working. You can't think, okay, well I'll connect when I'm when I'm fine. You're never going to be fine. You're always going to be a mental mess. The difference is that you're fixing up the mess. You are, and you're going through a growth process, and it's organic and it's developmental, and and each step forward is going to be changing how you function and, and then you can bring that into the community that's that's really absolutely. beautiful absolutely there's also i want to ask you just about in terms of mental health help and therapy in terms of racism i mean this is something that we is being addressed so much more now but the intergenerational changes of uh, the intergenerational impact of trauma and racism is a form of trauma. I mean, I always use, I'm sure you've seen my work where I talk about the toxic thoughts in the brain. I mean, trauma is toxic and it does pass through the the, the, the sperm and the over to the next generations. Can you talk just a little bit about intergenerational trauma from racism specifically and maybe just address a little bit of, you know, give people a few tips of how they could, if they, what they can do, what could they do if they suspect that this is what they're experiencing, which most likely they are. Yeah, of course. And so, I'll do my best to unpack this later. I know, it's later. huge. It's huge. <laughs> so okay. Much. It's huge. Sorry, I threw out big questions, no, but it's, it's so okay. it's so interesting and we got to talk about these things. Right. So. Absolutely. So the first thing is going back to racism being a public health issue. 
The reason why is because when a person is on the receiving end of racism, it can trigger um, an imbalance in their mental health. So racial trauma can mimic things like experiencing PTSD. You can have those PTSD symptoms. You can develop depression. You can develop anxiety. It can also impact you thematically where you are experiencing things like body aches, headaches, gut imbalances. Again, because racial trauma manifests the same way trauma does. So here you are experiencing these things. It also impacts a person's sense of self because what it does is it makes the person feel like they're an other. It makes it seem as if their existence is so problematic right? That they are not worthy of the life that they have been given solely based off the color of their skin. So not only do you have these issues related to the the different things that mental health, the different things that we're feeling in our body, but now you have this fragmented self-esteem, this fragmented idea of self-worth, self-love, all of those different layers are impacted when you are on the receiving end of dealing with racism. So now you have someone, now let's connect it to intergenerational trauma. You have someone who is dealing with racism, but let's say, because racism is so frequent, and I think it's important for people to know too, just because you're not hearing about it in the news, just because you're not hearing about it on a blog or in the media, doesn't mean it's not happening every day. There is someone who every day experiences a racial encounter. There are people who go to work and experience racism every day. And racism can also manifest through microaggressions where we make comments about, for example, Black women and their hair, where we don't make space for them them wearing their hair naturally in the work environment or their body shapes being deemed as inappropriate. So therefore certain outfits that they wear are are deemed as, that is what is deemed inappropriate because we, in essence, we're making a complaint about their body shape. We see micro insults when we choose not to hire people based off the name that we saw come across a resume. So we already project and say, oh, that must be a Black person. That must be a Hispanic person. We don't want to hire them. They probably aren't qualified. That is what microaggression can look like. And that also can impact a person's self-esteem, can cause feelings of depression, can cause anxiety, which is rooted in fear and worry. So you have all, you have this whole chasm of filled with so many different issues. Now, let's say this person who is on the receiving end of racism is continuously battling these things. And like I said, because racism can now manifest into a mental illness, when those issues are not treated, Those things can lead to substance abuse disorders. It can lead to violence. It can lead to chronic drug use. And now we have people who aren't coping in healthy ways, passing down, inadvertently, passing down these behaviors and passing down the ideologies that they hold from their unhealed wounds. And so that's how intergenerational trauma manifests because that means that there are some, there's some dysfunction, there's a level of hurt, there's a level of pain that is carrying through the lineage, someone's lineage, and someone has not done the work to break that cycle. Someone, all they're trying to do basically is survive the trauma that they're going through. But sometimes when we're trying to survive trauma, at times we're not actively 
doing the work to heal from the trauma. So sometimes our survival can look like us using unhealthy coping mechanisms so that we can try to stay alive, so that we can have the energy and the capacity to leave the house, so that we can function at work, so that we can still feel like we're a part of a community and a group. And so we develop these unhealthy habits just for the sake of survival, but we're not necessarily healing and getting to the root of the thing that caused this pain, getting to the root of how racism made us feel, how the depression has impacted us, how the anxiety, the fear, the worry, the doubt, the confusion, all of that has overcame us in so many ways that we now develop these unhealthy characteristics where we might self-sabotage or we might have unhealthy boundaries or we might often play victim because we feel like everyone is against us. And we and a lot of the time we play victim because we don't see our worth, you know? And so it's about recognizing now all those things now start to impact the family unit. And so you have intergenerational trauma manifesting. So often one of the main questions I get is, how do we work through intergenerational trauma, right? And this is so necessary. And so the first thing I say is we need people who have the level of self-awareness to recognize something, this, there's this pattern, there's this behavior, something is being repeated over and over and over, and I'm seeing the same results, and those results are not leading to my happiness. It's just leading to me feeling miserable. It's leading to me feeling unhappy. I don't have joy. I find that there's these these behaviors I continuously engage in and it's not working for me. And self-awareness can happen in many ways. So one, some of us naturally do become self-aware. Children who grow up in families that have a lot of dysfunctional patterns and maybe you can even talk more about how this impacts the brain because there are some people who they now inhibit those behaviors and they start to do the things that their parents do. Or you have some people who notice those behaviors and say, oh, pause, I don't want that. Something's wrong here. This emotion doesn't feel good. So I don't want to repeat the same pattern because now I have a child and I remember when my parents thanked me just for asking for something. I remember seeing my parent drink alcohol and the abuse that came from it. So I don't want this for myself, right? But then you have another group of people where that's, they see that behavior and because behavior can also be learned, they now say, or inadvertently in some sort of ways, they are now absorbing those behaviors. And so their parent drank to cope with stress. And so now we see ourselves coming home every day after work having a cocktail and or one, two, three, four, right? And so self-awareness is one can happen from us recognizing our own patterns and we can look backwards. I always say, start off with the family tree. What do you know about your parents? What do you know about your grandparents? What are some things that impacted you during your childhood that didn't make you feel safe? So as an adult, how can you tap into your inner child and bring yourself back to a place where, think about a moment where you felt fear from your parents. Think about a moment when you felt that safety and security. Was it there in the household? And let's talk about those patterns that you saw 
And do you see yourself inhibiting and expressing those same patterns? Because now that shows us that the cycle is still going. And so now we see areas where we can start to break the cycle because you're checking in with your inner child and recognizing, well, you know what? I do remember that when I was young, you know, when I would ask for certain things, I got yelled at. And so now I'm afraid to use my voice and I'm afraid to speak up. I'm afraid to ask for what I need. I feel like I'm an inconvenience to people because when I was a child, my parent made me feel like I was a bother to them. My parent made me feel like I wasn't wanted. So that's how we can cultivate self-awareness by tapping inward, looking through our family tree and thinking about those interactions that didn't produce healthy, good emotions in us. Another thing I say too is around self-awareness is think about people who have the same message when they're around you, right? Because you might not notice, but if five people are coming to you saying, hey, you've been drinking a lot lately, that's an indicator that people in your community are seeing something that maybe you can investigate on your own, you know? And so sometimes we don't even see it because we're so close to it. We're so close to the trauma and we're so close to the pain that we don't see it and we don't realize that we are mimicking a lot of these dysfunctional behaviors that we actually say we don't want for ourselves. But there oftentimes we have people around us who are telling us, and even, even if it's not a close friend, think about, for example, I've worked with people and I said, you know, when you've gone to work, you've gotten the same feedback at about four to five different jobs and you keep quitting these jobs, but I'm noticing the same theme jumping in and out of these jobs you get. I'm thinking about the relationships with your partners, right? You want marriage, you want long-term partnership, but I'm noticing, noticing that the same theme and same discussion keeps coming up from your partner. You keep having the same arguments. Maybe we need to unpack this because maybe something is there. And I think often people don't want to believe that they are the problem. Oh, yeah. It's really hard. <laughs> it's so we, all, we all battle. Hard. No one wants to. No one wants to believe that it's them. It is so easy for us to cast blame. Right, which is or a act like the victim. Decision. Exactly. To act like the victim or cast blame because it's easier to say, no, they have an issue that they need to fix. It's not me, because that also takes a level of vulnerability. And sometimes that brings up feelings of shame. And shame is very, very hard to tackle, you know? And so I would just say recognize that sometimes it is okay. It is okay for you to be the problem. And the reason why is because our journey in life is about learning and unlearning. And until we are the problem, we won't know what needs to be unlearned. It's one of those, those very difficult truths in life where sometimes it takes making mistakes to get the lesson. Mm, you know, and so it's making the mess yeah. so that you can repair and grow. Exactly. You know, you, it's your mental mess. Yeah, right? there you go. It's right? a mental mess. It's a mental mess. And so you might notice that you have a few messes in your life and you're not going to know what to clean up until, until you see, oh, this is a mess. This area is a mess. My love life is a mess. My relationship to people is a mess. The job that I continue to have 
this is a mess. And so let me sit down with this mess and start sorting through it to figure out what is the common denominator here? It's me. And so what is the mess that I'm carrying that I need to start shifting and examining so that I can clean this up? Love it. This episode is sponsored by my go-to snack company, Monk Pack, who makes snacks that taste like our favorite sugary treats, but with one gram of sugar or less. Healthy snacks have a bad reputation. And let's be honest, most don't taste very good, they don't fill you up, and they certainly don't satisfy your cravings. Monk Pack Keto Granola Bar contains just one gram of sugar, two grams of net carbs, and they're only 140 calories. They're great for anyone following a keto lifestyle, but also the perfect snack for anyone who's trying to eat better or cut back on sugar and carbs without sacrificing taste. I always keep a few bars in my bag or car because hanger is a real thing. I also love having the almond butter chalk chip one a few hours before my workouts because it's easy on my stomach and gives me so much energy. Monk Pack Keto Granola Bars have a soft and chewy texture and come in other delicious flavors like coconut cocoa, chip, honey nut, and blueberry almond vanilla. In addition to being keto-friendly, the bars are also gluten-free, grain-free, plant-based, and non-GMO, with no soy, trans-fat sugar alcohols, or artificial colors. They taste incredible, and you can't beat the low-sugar nutrition or taste they provide. And by shopping online, you can avoid another trip to the grocery store by getting Monk Pack delivered right to your door. Try it for yourself and you'll see. And we have a special deal for our listeners. Get 20% off your first purchase of any Monk Pack product by visiting monkpack.com and entering our code DRLEAF at checkout. And Monk Pack is so confident in their product, it's backed with a 100% satisfaction guarantee. So if you don't like it for any reason, they'll exchange the product or refund your money, whichever you prefer. To get started, just go to monkpack.com, that's M-U-N-K-P-A-C-K.com, and select any product. Then enter the code Dr. Lee for checkout to save 20% off your first purchase. The link and offer details will be in the show notes. I wrote down so many things, but I wanted to say the, the one thing I wanted to really emphasize, you said, it's okay to say that you're the problem. My writing's a mental mess too. <laughs> a mess too. So I love that because it is, and it's something I'm so glad you said that I say it so often as well, but you said it so beautifully how okay to, to, to hear people telling you that, and it's okay to feel bad about feeling that, but it's okay to be the problem. That's just incredible. That's freeing because that is the first step of self-awareness. And the other thing maybe to tag onto that to help us to, all of us, because all of us are the problem at some point, is to recognize that exact thing at some point someone else will be the problem so if you're the problem now you're not alone you're not the only one every if you're a human you're going to make a mental mess you're going to be a problem at some point in your life and there's a pattern that you're going to have to identify and there's a reason why you feel like that so it's it's not something to be ashamed of yes you're the problem yes it's a repeated thing at work and in relationships and in 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 um, someone five people are pointing this out to you so there's that external observation of and repeated patterns in work relationships etc and it's okay to accept that even though it's hard to to help you accepting tell yourself it's okay to be the problem and at some point that person telling me they were also a problem just to help you maybe cope at that point but accept the problem and there's so much research showing and my recent research also showed this that when you embrace something like that that you're the problem you immediately get control over it but if you deny it it still controls you and you will continue to be the problem yeah so it's, it's hard it's a, it's a, a double-edged sword it's it's difficult it's painful but that's where the healing begins it's like surgery you know you have to get yes. cut up before you get healed 
No, I love what you said. And I love the fact that we've got to develop self-awareness in two two routes. It's sometimes we can do it on our own, but then there's some instances where we need the external to help us, as we've just been discussing, that, that it's really yeah. so important. I love that. I would love to transition. There's so much more I want to discuss about this. And we could talk for hours about this, but I would love, yeah, it's so, it's so good. Mina, I want to transition. That's such a great conversation we have, and I'd love to take that deeper. We'll have to do another podcast sometime and dig deeper there because it's such a great point. But it kind of transitions really nicely over to if we are the self-awareness where we either develop our own self-awareness to being able to evaluate our patterns and make the changes, or we might need a bit of outside prompting where people come to us. So just in summary of what we've just said. So let's say now that you on that other side and you are noticing a pattern in someone that you love and you want to help them. And part of that help is you've got to go tell them, hey, listen, you keep doing this. And, you know, this one's noticing, they're all noticing. So in other words, you're pointing out something that they're doing, but you're also wanting to help. So I want to transition over to how do we help people? And you had a great video that I really enjoyed listening to a couple of days back where you're talking about asking for help and being a helper. And then you cover in the video things like how to determine who we should ask for help from, the ways our childhood impacts how we view help, how to determine if you should give help. And how to take, not to take things personally when someone can't offer you help. So the the one that links directly to what we just discussed is how uh, the ways in our childhood impacted how we view help. So sometimes someone coming to you externally and saying, hey, five of us have noticed you do this or this keeps happening in your behavior. How we've been impacted from childhood about receiving help might influence that negatively, whatever. There's so many tie-ins over here. Can you talk a little bit? Let's just, let's talk about this concept of asking for help and being the helper. Can you give us some tips and some and some guidelines? Yeah, of course. And like you said, you know, it just speaks into how everything is nuanced, right? And so nothing is black and white. And so a lot of topics need to be fleshed out in many different ways. But to speak about asking for help, especially in a context where people are coming to us and saying, you know, hey, I, I noticed this thing is going on with you. I noticed this change in your behavior. I'll start off with what it means to be the the person who's in need of the help. So let's say that's the situation that happens and now you're on the receiving end of it and you're like, okay, maybe something is wrong and I do need help. The first thing I often say is cultivate your community. Now, Now, this is a time for you to look toward who are the people in my circle that I actually can ask for help. But I find that there are things that get in the way of us asking for help. So the first common theme that when I even check in with my community or work with clients, the common theme is I'm a burden. There's this common thread, this common theme that people feel like they are inconveniencing others because one, sometimes this feeling of a burden comes from you feel like you're supposed to know how to do this on your own. Again. This goes back to what we were talking about in our culture, valuing independence over interdependence, right? So we already live in a society that tells us independence. You should know how to do this. You pull yourself up by the bootstraps. You do this. You, you, you. I, 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 right? And so already on a societal level, and this goes back to, again, too, even when we take it to early childhood development, how... It's not just our caregivers that influence us. It's our environment. It's our society. It's everything that we're exposed to. So sometimes you may have grown up in a household that you saw a healthy examples for help, but even on the societal level, we're learning from the things we see in society. So 
On a societal level, like I said, we value independence over interdependence. And so we already have this belief that we are inconveniencing people and that we are supposed to know, we should know, that should word, right? We should know how to do X, Y, Z. Another thing that comes up is sometimes, depending, culture plays a role in this as well. And I don't think people talk about culture when it comes to asking for help, right? So I had even shared in that video how I come from two parents who are from Panama. So already they have this immigrant mentality of we came by ourselves. We did this by ourselves. And so we are not leaning on anyone else for support. And that was the type of household I was raised in. So I did not see healthy examples of my parents asking for help. And there were consequences to that. So I always think, I wonder what it would have been like if we would have just spoken up and say, hey, can we, we need help around this thing. Would we have suffered in the whatever areas we suffered the way we did? And so culturally, a lot of us come from an upbringing where we're not taught how to lean on community. And in some ways, we're taught to see help in a very negative way. And we're taught that asking for help actually is an inconvenience to others or it's shaming. And so we automatically have this idea that we were burdened. So the first thing I see is it all goes back to reframing because those things are all cognitive distortions. It's the negative way of thinking, right? And when we're not in control of a situation- It's one of these, (laughs) toxic thought. (laughs) It needs needs to be reconceptualized into this help is good, it's healthy. Exactly, right. Something that- bring forth life and healing, right? And we need to reframe how we see these things. And this can take some time. I always say all these practices that people learn, don't think it's an overnight fix. It's a lifelong journey of trying to reframe and reconstruct these thoughts that we have, that especially we've been ingrained to believe since we were children, you know? And so I always say reframe that. And when we think of being a burden, I often say reframe it to a place of recognizing that often when we're asking for help, it's a question. That means the person can respond with a yes or no, and that is their boundary. That is for them. Mm, I'm so glad you brought that word up because you've got to have boundaries. When it comes with help, you have to kind of pair the two together. Mm -hmm. Exactly. So as the person on the receiving end who wants help, I think it's important for those, for people who are in need, of, in need of help to also practice healthy boundaries and recognize what boundaries are. Because then when you go to someone and say, hey, I'm in need of something from you, you recognize that you're giving them the opportunity to express their boundary back to you. And therefore that helps you not to take things personal because you already have done the work and, and gained skills and recognize, okay, that's their boundary. I'm not going to take it personally. Because at the end of the day, another thing, the goals of being a helper or asking for help, when we're asking for help, we're asking for someone's labor. And that labor can come in the form of emotional, mental, spiritual, physical, all of the above. And so it does require a lot for someone to be able to give it. But we need to give that person permission to define for themselves if they can give it. Because when we think we're a burden, we say, oh, I'm not going to ask them for help because they're so busy. Or I'm not going to ask them for help because I don't want to inconvenience them. And what you're doing is you're controlling the narrative. You're not giving that, uh, that person an opportunity to express their boundary to you. 
So I always say, how can you just reframe this idea of being a burden? Another thing that often comes up is that that weakness part. And all that is intertwined as well, where that weakness part comes in again with our, how our society review views help and believes that we are supposed to know how to do things on our own. So if you need help, something's wrong with you. Right. And in this, in this context too, it makes me think of therapy culture. How and the current ago, mental health system, the current exactly, mental health system, there's something wrong with you. You've got a disease when all you yes. are is you battling with life or right. some, you've had some trauma or something. Right. And so we have to learn how to shift it where if the goal is growth, if the goal is expansion, then asking for help doesn't make me weak. It actually makes me wise because help is going to give me the tools that I need to replenish, to restore. And then I can fill my cup and pour back out to that person. If I don't have any of those resources, I'm going to be depleted and I'm going to be empty. And I'm going to, again, be repeating those same cycles. Like you talked about an intergenerational trauma. I'm going to be repeating these same cycles over and over again. And so now what is the consequence of me not asking for the thing I know I need most? And so I think when it just comes for us and just to frame it again, also for people who are used to being helpers, sometimes we have people pleasing tendencies. So we feel like we have to say yes to everything, or we're concerned that if we don't give the help, that's going to, there's going to be a rupture in the relationship. And so, as I said earlier, when someone is asking for help, they're asking for your labor. You don't always have to give a response immediately. I always say practice the power of pause. Try to cope, even if you, even if the back of your head, you're like, yeah, I can do that thing. Of course. I always say still pause and give yourself time and space to really flesh it out because you can say yes to something and then recognize, oh, I actually don't have the capacity to perform this labor. Because what I find too is when we're saying yes to others and we are on the helping side, we are often committed to supporting the person, but we also need to be committed to the tasks that they're asking of us. And so sometimes there's a disconnection, right? There's a disconnection. The disconnection is I'm, I'm, I'm committed to supporting you, but, oh, actually, I'm realizing I'm not committed to the thing you asked of me, <laughs> you know? Yeah, and so you so, got to work out a balance right, there. Yeah. Right. And so that's why it's about recognizing that when someone comes to us for our, for our labor, we really need to do the work of recognizing, do I have the capacity to show up? It's not just showing up for them. It's about showing up for the request that they made. And do I have the capacity, the emotional, mental, spiritual, physical, whatever, to pour into the thing that they're asking of me? Because we blend those two things together. It's like, oh, you're my best friend. Of course, I want to help you. But then you realize, but I don't have the resources to help you with the task you're asking. Exactly. And And those are two different things. Right. Yeah. And so, so you've got to work I, I, out a way of balancing that, of, of wanting exactly. to help, but saying, I can do this, but I can't do that. And that's you setting exactly. boundaries as the helper. Yeah. Exactly. And, and, that, and just expressing that. Expressing that. That's brilliant. It's easy to set a goal, but so hard to stick with them, especially when it comes to exercise and dietary changes. So if you're feeling fed up and frustrated and looking for a little extra help and guidance when it comes to food, weight loss, exercise, and building healthy new habits, then I highly recommend the program Noom. 
Based in psychology, Noom teaches you how to eat so you can accomplish your personal health goals and stick with them long term. Because you don't need rules to lose weight, you need knowledge. With Noom, you pick the health goals that are right for you and Noom personalizes a weight loss program to help your aspirations become reality. I've been using Noom for a while now and I love how flexible it is. Noom works with your lifestyle so you don't commit to a rigorous plan which then ends up backfiring on you because it's not sustainable. There's a science to getting healthier. It's called Noom. Sign up for your trial today at Noom, N-O-O-M forward slash Dr. Leaf. Learn how to eat again with Noom. Sign up for your trial today at Noom, N-O-O-M forward slash Dr. Leaf. Ready to learn how to live healthier? Sign up for Noom today at N-O-O-M forward slash Dr. Leaf. The link and offer details will also be in the show notes. And I'm so glad you brought up the power of the pause because I actually talk about that in my new book, Cleaning Up Your Mental Mess, where I actually explain about the tense, the neurochemistry, the neuroscience behind that. You know, your mind is perceiving all this stuff and you've got your mind is separate from your brain. So you've got all this neurochemical chaos in your brain from the need of a person. And it's not necessarily bad because you love the person and you want to help them and you're aware that they need that. But there's a lot, you, you're starting to try and process what you can and can't do. As you said, separate out, I, I love the person, I want to help the person. But can I do what they need of me? Or what can I do? If you respond immediately, you're going to regret it. And then you get frustrated and resent maybe and all that kind of thing. So the power of the pause is so good because it actually, at every 10 seconds, if you do at least 60 to 90 seconds, you actually get the neurochemical chaos under control. And then you can do as many cycles as you need. So it's 10 seconds and at least six to nine of those. So so there's some science behind it. And I actually have a whole yeah. section in the book about the vital importance I to bring that. brain balance back in again. So I'm so glad you brought that up. It's absolutely brilliant. We could talk all day this is such a great conversation (laughs) you'll have to continue this at some point where can people get hold of you and find out more about your work of course so they can find me on instagram my handle is m-i-n-a-a underscore b and that's where i do weekly community check-ins every sunday i do a weekly community check-in where people can submit questions and we flush out more conversations like this I also have a newsletter. People can find my newsletter by visiting the link in my bio on Instagram or by visiting my website at www.minaminaab.com. And I always say sign up for my newsletter because I have a bunch of offerings that I will be sharing with my community. And so through my newsletter is where people will first find out. That's fantastic. Thank you so much. And we'll put that all those links in the new in the show notes. And I want to thank you for your time and your wisdom and your expertise. And you know, I just love what you've said. It just goes hand in hand with with what I believe. And it's so helpful. You know, you've really made some very, very practical, helpful things that we've learned today. So thank you so much for your time and your input. And thank you so much, Dr. Lee. That's my pleasure. I hope you found today's podcast interesting and helpful. If you want more tips and help with managing anxiety, depression, and mental health, be sure to visit my website at drleaf.com and to sign up for my weekly newsletter where I also include a schedule of my speaking events and so much more. And follow me on social media. I'm on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Just look for Dr. Caroline Leaf. Also, I love seeing all your posts on social media about this podcast. I love seeing what resonates with you and what you've learned. So be sure to continue posting and tagging me and letting me know what you think and how these tips worked out for you. 
And don't forget, leave a review and keep spreading the word about this podcast. Thank you for joining me today. I really hope you learned something new and helpful. Till then, I'm Dr. Caroline Leaf. This podcast represents the opinions of myself and my guests. The content here should not be taken as medical advice. The content here is for educational and informational purposes only. Please consult your healthcare professional for any individual medical questions you may have. While we make every effort to ensure that the information we are sharing is accurate, we welcome any comments, suggestions or corrections of errors.